And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it starts another week as we get ready actually to wrap up the last couple of weeks of September. Uh, of course, this week, last week, of course, we had all the inflation data. Uh, so that weighed a bit on the markets. Friday, big op- options expiration day. This week, the Fed meeting, will they, won't they? This is the big question about hiking interest rates again. Most likely, Fed stays pat, still stays a bit hawkish, talking about incoming data. They're going to monitor that data, make sure it's all fine. Um, but you know, be willing to raise rates and really kind of reinforce that higher for longer. So that's going to be the big news this week. But coming up over the course of the rest of this month and really into October, we've got the economic trifecta going on. So right now we have uh, student loan payments restarting September the 1st. Of course, you have the United Auto Workers strike. A 21% pay hike was offered and UAW said, nope, that's a no-go. So uh, the strike goes on there. Of course, this is going to impact auto sales, potentially take a nip out of the economy from that strike going on. And then, of course, outside of the student loan repayments that are starting, of course, that's going to reduce discretionary spending. You also have the potential for a government shutdown coming up in October. Of course, this will be a, a, as we've talked about before, it'll be a big debate. In fact, headlines out this morning about the disaster. This could be the most expensive shutdown in history. Well, of course it is because we're spending more every year. So every year that we shut down the economy, we spent more than last year, it becomes more expensive. But that's going to be the headlines. Lots of, of hand wringing and teeth gnashing over the, the, the irresponsibility of shutting down the government. This is all going to be blamed on everybody. Um, of course, it's all for show because at the end of the day, yes, everybody will just simply sign off on a continuing resolution and we'll go on about our business and we'll spend 8% more money than we did last year, which is why the shutdowns continue to get more expensive every time we have them. But maybe somebody should come back and say, maybe we should actually cut some spending. Uh, silly. Didn't even think about that. Um, good news out this morning, of course, also there is a Five American prisoners are going to be released out of Iran today. There's a jet standing by to bring them home. Uh, So both America and Iran are going to exchange five prisoners each. And we also transferred $6 billion uh, to Iran. Not sure why, but we're we're exchanging, we're we're paying for prisoners. I'm not sure. Anyway, there's a a prisoner exchange going on today. Um, And so that's uh, good news. Five Americans coming home from Iran. Um, Outside of that, this is going to be a sloppy uh, couple of weeks as we head into um, October. Now, one thing you're going to see is you're going to see a lot of data out over the next couple of days about the last two weeks of September tend to be sloppy. Um, One thing you have to remember is that today is September the 18th. What's so special about today? That was when Lehman filed for bankruptcy back in 2008. So that a lot of that a lot of that market data, uh, the weakness that you have in the last couple of weeks of September, is, is a little skewed by the Lehman bankruptcy. Because if you remember back in 2008 when Lehman filed for bankruptcy, we had literally five days of the market just dropping like a stone. I mean, nobody was trading anything, nobody knew what was going on, um, and. 
you know, that was, you know, kind of the problem. And then, of course, we go back to 2000. Um, we had, unfortunately, 2001, right? We had September the 11th, and then the market was closed for the next five days. And then when the markets reopened, there was a bunch of, a bunch of stuff. So that way, all that type, type, those type of, of, you know, exogenous events weigh on the average daily return of these last two weeks. So again, barring some type of exogenous event that just really crushes the markets over the next few days, uh, markets tend to be a little bit sloppy here. And, and again, you know, we'll, we'll kind of see how this plays out. But uh, that should get us, you know, kind of set up for the seasonally strong period of the year as, as we get ready to go into October, November, December, which is the subject of our article uh, that we have coming out tomorrow morning. But here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. The market um, was down on Friday, um, actually a little bit over 1% on Friday. And we did take out the 20-day moving average. So the, the market was above the 50-day. We took out on Friday both the 50 and the 20-day moving average on Friday. Um, Friday was a bit strange because it was the largest options expiration that we ha have had on record. It was a very, very big options expiration day, which means a lot of stocks had to be sold. There was a lot of puts on companies. Those had to all be rolled over. And, and so that created some outsized volatility on Friday. Um, the good news, if you want to call it that, is that the market is sitting right on support of, of this kind of this consolidation pattern that we've now been in here for the last couple of weeks. And again, as we talked about before, you know, we're in that kind of seasonally weak, sloppy period of the year. Um, and, and we've been kind of grinding through that. So that has gotten the market, you know, uh, you know, heading back towards a bit oversold. We're sitting right on a potential sell signal right now for the market. So the market needs to kind of get some footing under it today, tomorrow, um, you know, this week at least. We need to keep this market kind of holding in here at this point. Unfortunately, for the next day or two heading into the Fed meeting, um, markets are going to kind of be positioning ahead of that meeting. So some additional weakness over the next couple of days would not be surprising at all. Um, but again, you know, we're, we're not at a, a disastrous point in the markets. You know, we certainly have some weakness here, um, certainly expected because that's where we are this time of the year uh, at the moment. But the market still remains in a very nice kind of bullish uptrend here. There's really not a lot to worry about. The market could pull back to around 440 um, which is kind of some of this previous level of support that we had during that August decline as well. So we had that decline back in, in early August. The market bounced. We've been consolidating here for the last week or so. A little bit more weakness here, potentially going into the Fed meeting, would not be surprising. But, but overall, uh, not a whole lot to worry about here from you know, the, the return of a bear market, so to speak. Um, the, the MACD indicator, yes, we could trigger a bit of a sell signal. Um, that could be a little bit weaker here as well if the market does begin to sell off. But we're already at fairly low levels, so there's not a lot of downside risk to the markets currently. But it's going to be a little bit kind of boring for the next few days. I wouldn't expect a whole lot of, of fireworks. Uh, potentially, if the Fed comes out, says something um, more dovish, uh, we could see the markets pick up from there. But again, most likely we'll get moving into October. And then once we get to October, we have quite a few things that start to go on. First of all, uh, positioning is bearish on the markets. And, and again, sentiment of professional investors also very negative at this point. So that provides fuel for that kind of year-end rally. A lot of professional managers, portfolio managers, et cetera, need to play catch up by the end of the year in terms of performance. 
Uh, so there's going to be some buying coming in, particularly in some of those kind of headline names that they need to have on their books by year end. Um, so again, there's going to be some buying impetus there in October, November, December for that. Also, you're going to have roughly, once we get through earnings, which kicks off the beginning of October, once we get through earnings, the buyback window for companies opens back up and there's roughly $5 billion a day in buybacks that have to be completed by the end of the quarter. So there's, there's going to be some buying power as we get into October, November, December. Now, this doesn't mean October the 1st, the market's just going to take off running. That's not what that means. But this sloppy period that we're in is likely coming to a close here over the next two, three, four weeks. We could go a little bit into October with some of this weakness, potentially if the market does sell off here over the next few days, continue to try to, you know, kind of slop around and trade a bit. But once we really start to get into November, earnings get behind us, then November, December tend to be seasonally stronger two months of the year. So again, kind of want to be watching that for a positioning standpoint, but that's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Okay, when we come back, we got lots of stuff to get into, so don't go away. More of The Real Investment Show coming right up. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So this, I don't know what happened. So this weekend, my uh, wife went out of town. She went to go see my daughter uh, up at college. And I was like, yes, wife's out of town. Going to be man cave weekend, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to like, you know, get a bunch of really bad food and I'm going to watch movies that, you know, my wife doesn't like to watch. It's going to be great. And I don't know what happened, but somewhere along the way, I wound up doing laundry, <laughs> cooking a healthy dinner. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Could have been worse. You could have had to repair the refrigerator all weekend. Is that what you did? Yes, I did. I'm sorry to hear about it. Yeah. That, that, that's, well, did it's, you get it fixed? It's not my kind of chilling, but yeah, we got it done. Okay. What was wrong with it? $7 part. And it took you all weekend to replace the $7 well, part? Well, I'm not a paid professional in that realm. Gotcha. You know, but I did save myself three hundred and fifty dollars on a service call. Okay, well let's think about this for a minute. How long were you? How long were you without a refrigerator? Oh, we had another one in the back room. Okay, so, so yeah. And how many hours did you spend fixing your refrigerator? Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have to do this. This is where you apply girl math. You know what girl math is? I'm about to find out. You don't know what girl math is? I have a suspicion. Okay, girl math is this. My wife goes shopping, right? She finds um, some item that's on sale for 50% off. <laughs> yeah. Okay? So she made us money by buying this oh, item yeah. that's 50% mm -hmm. off. Yeah. Now, girl math does work in, in some cases. If you can buy, for instance, you know, uh, Louis Vuitton shoes mm -hmm. at, you know, 50% off. For somehow. That's like a win. Like, you can get a $900 pair of shoes for, say, 300 bucks. You actually made money because you can resell those on... You know, yeah. as long as you immediately sell them, you can't keep them, right? Girl math won't work in that environment. You can't buy something and then keep it, right? But if you can buy something at a discount and then immediately resell it and recognize the mm -hmm. gain, yeah. that's that's actually making money. Yeah. 
and you can do that. There's there's websites you can resell shoes on and all kinds of stuff. So, but my <laughs> wife's girl math is is that, you know, it's cheaper to hire it out because she has better things to do with her time. Well, I get that too. Yeah. <laughs> but in your case, it was the function that you fixed it. I'm just too tight. <laughs> And I, I was so mad about it because I had paid it to have it repaired right. a couple of years ago. And the design on the refrigerator itself is flawed okay. by the manufacturer. Okay. So I replaced the faulty part. Gotcha. Well, good for you. Yeah. You're handy. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> you just told everybody. <laughs> so if you need your refrigerator fixed, Brent Clanton is for hire at $250 an hour. Girl math will save you money. <laughs> yeah. He's like Mattress Mac. <laughs> will save, save you money. You money. <laughs> Today. I wouldn't actually hire Brent to come fix my refrigerator. But <laughs> it's always a good thing. I'll send you the YouTube link. There you go. Because that's what I used. <laughs> Perfect. For $250, you too can get the YouTube link. <laughs> yeah. All right, a couple of things to get into this morning. Um, coming up at the bottom of the hour, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, bond vigilantes because this has been, I got a bunch of questions over the weekend. Uh, people t- running around talking about on financial media channels, you know, um, you know, because of the debts and deficits, nobody wants to buy our bonds anymore, and it's a complete myth. Um, but I wrote a whole article on it on, uh, on, uh, on Friday. It's on the website if you want to go through all the charts. But when we come back at the bottom of the hour here i want to give it a pulse and we're going to clip this segment for you so you can you know regurgitate over it at your convenience um you watch it while you're repairing your refrigerator (laughs) exactly but we're going to go over why the the myth of the Biden vigilantes continues to uh persist but is not real uh so we'll get into that um couple as, as i talked about um you know we've got really kind of three things coming up this month uh, a couple of them going on right now. Obviously, the uh, United Auto Workers strike is, you know, kind of going on right now, and that's you know, uh, you know, it's not a huge, you know, end of the world type scenario, but it does impact the economy. That's you know, the United Auto Workers is a is a big organization, big union, and the shutdown, the strike, is going to cost a, a smidgen of economic activity. So that's one thing. But, you know, it's it's really the student loan repayments that restart October the 1st and this potential government shutdown, all of which could, uh, you know, have a a larger impact on short-term economics. And, again, remember, this isn't just about, you know, the shutdown, right? We we go through these shutdowns all the time. And you're going to – look, you're going to get a ton of headlines out, uh, again – uh, Yahoo Finance this morning. Why a government shutdown this fall could be the costliest one ever. Uh, as I said earlier, yes, of course, we spend 8% more every year. And then we throw a whole bunch of spending on top of that uh, for various things. And so, yes, uh, you know, as the government continues to become larger and larger and larger, these shutdowns are going to be more costly, you know, economy-wise. Because if you have to lay off, you know, a million non-essential workers – which, as we've said before, should be a, a, a clue. Uh, <laughs> um, if you get laid off, you're not considered essential. I mean, that's a, kind of a clue right there as to where maybe some budget cuts should start. But nonetheless, 
you know, that's going to cause an impact to the economy. Now, does that mean it's going to immediately, you know, is this the Lehman moment? No, it's not, right? This is a very small, you know, total. These three three things might clip, you know, half a percent off economic growth. It's going to be there. It'll be felt, right? The economic data will certainly reflect it. But, you know, don't let these headlines scare you into making some rash decision about your portfolio because, again, we go through these things all the time. The only thing we haven't gone through before and the only thing we don't really have a baseline for is the student loan repayments because we've never suspended student loan payments before and said, hey, you don't have to pay the money. And then now all of a sudden it's like, oh, you got to repay the money. And again, you know, the whole and, and, and the problem, you know, that exists with the student loan payments was not the function of, of, of ceasing the payment. Right. So. You know, during the, the pandemic, we said, OK, look, you know, if you've got a student loan right now. We, we realize you're out of work. Um, you can't go to work because we've shut down the economy. So you don't have to make your student loan payment. OK, that's OK. People could have planned for that. Right. They go, OK, you know, I'm, I've, I've got this extra money right now. I know I'm going to have to start, you know, spending this money. I'm going to have to start making these payments at some point in the future. Uh, we could have been very clear about that student loan repayment situation for people. And they could have acted accordingly to prepare themselves for a restarting of those student loan payments. But see, we didn't do that. The whole time we kept telling them, not only did we suspend the payment, but we're going to just eliminate your student loan debt altogether. And this was going on right up to the last minute of, you know, we're, we've got, we're going to forgive your student loans. You won't have to make payments ever again. And so people are going, okay, well, if I don't make student loan payments ever again, I'll go spend the money. And that didn't happen. See, we made all these promises that were not constitutional. And now you've really caused a problem. But again, we don't have a baseline for this. So we really don't. So nobody, so everybody's kind of guessing what the impact's going to be, but nobody really knows. We don't really know just how bad the situation will or won't be. I mean, maybe, maybe. The, the restarting the student loan payments is, is fine. Maybe everybody, you know, took last month and said, mm, I better, better save up, you know, a couple hundred bucks for a student loan payment. I don't know, but we'll find out. Could be, could be more severe. Again, it's 12 to $15 billion a month in spending. So it could certainly have an impact on discretionary services in particular. I uh, thought it was interesting and maybe, maybe, maybe just maybe, people are starting to put some money aside for student loan payments because pizza sales are down. According to Bank of America data, and you know it's bad when people aren't ordering pizza, but pizza sales are down. And, and more importantly, pizza sales are down when? At the start of football season. <laughs> you would expect pizza sales to be popping through the roof right now, right? Got to order a pizza, sit down for the game. So we'll see. Again, I don't really have, you know, any any real data to work on and say, look, you know, in the, the past, you know, like, for instance, government shutdowns, we can go back through history. We've had these things repeatedly. And so we can go back and go, this is what happened every time we had a government shutdown. Debt ceiling debates, right? We can go back through history and say, you know, did we ever default on our debt from a debt ceiling debate once back in 1970s? Yes, we actually did default on our debt for about a week. So we can go back and look at those periods and say this is what happened after, and we and see we, uh, debt ceiling debates and 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 those type of thing, government shutdowns, they're non-event.
student loan payments, we don't have any data to go back on. We can't go back to, you know, 1984 and say, well, the last time we suspended student loan payments was, you know, here and this is what happened after. We don't have any data for that. So we'll, we'll find out. Uh, I thought this was interesting this morning. Student loans, women bear the brunt of the student debt crisis. Overall, Americans owe over $1.7 trillion in federal student loan debt, and women hold two-thirds of it. And due to pay disparities, loan repayment is bigger struggle for women. Um, the pay disparity thing is a myth, by the way. Um, it's job choices. But these are the things that will impact the economy as we go forward. So as we start to move forward over the next three months, six months, nine months, this stuff will start to kind of manifest itself and we'll figure out um, kind of more of where we are. But this, this could potentially have a big impact on markets, and it may not. It could have a big impact on spending, but it may not. Nobody knows. So be careful of anybody that tells you they do. Be right back after the break. Don't go away. Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. So, back in the uh, 1800s, out in the Wild West, when uh, lawlessness got out of hand in some cases, Town folk would uh, solve the problem. And these were called vigilantes. And they would go out and they would, you know, round up the, the lawbreakers, hang them, you know, whatever. And, you know, vigilantism works, but it's not legal. And, of course, the sheriff, but, you know, back in the 1800s, a lot of times, you know, you've seen the movies, a lot of times the sheriff was corrupt because he was in with the, the land baron and he's getting paid off by the land baron, you know, to, to uh, drive off the sheep farmers in exchange to, you know, build more cattle ranch, you know, whatever it was, you, you've seen the movies. But the myth, the, you know, this myth of vigilantism um, is fine. And, and, and this is, particularly relating to the bond market. And there's been a lot of conversations of late. I've got a lot of emails from people saying, well, so-and-so said the bond vigilantes are coming back and they're not going to want to buy the debt. You know, bond buyers won't want to buy the debt anymore because of, you know, the amount of the deficit, the amount of debt we have issued, et cetera. And, it, and it's certainly a great headline, right? It's a, it's a great It's a great story. It sounds, you know, just brings up all of these 
images of the Wild West and, you know, these these bond traders with masks on and they're, you know, they're going to raid the bond market and, and, and uh, refuse to buy bonds, etc. And so interest rates are going to have to go up. And, and it's a great story. And, and, and uh, the problem is, is that the term bond vigilante was penned in 1980 by Ed Yardini. And since 1980, kind of like Samuel Beckett's waiting on Godot, we're still waiting for the bond vigilantes to arrive. But, you know, everybody keeps coming out every year going, well, this is the year the bond vigilantes are going to come, and yet they don't. And there's a big reason for that, which I'll tell you about. And this article is on the website right now. I'm just going to, I'm going to go through a couple of the charts from the article. But if you want to read the whole article, it's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. It's called Bond Vigilantes and the Waiting of Godot. So first of all, if we take a look at 10-year interest rates as a function and look at the year-over-year rate of change of the, of the bond market, what we know is that this is the biggest annual rate of change in history. Now, this is not just the increase in yield. If you go back and look at the late 1970s, the, the actual increase in the yield was much greater than it is today, but it was from much higher levels. So when you go from a, basically a zero interest rate to 4%, it's a massive increase in the year-over-year rate of change. So, you know, the important thing, though, is to realize that throughout history, every time you've had these large year-over-year rates of change, they don't last. And the reason is, is because you wind up with either a financial crisis, a recession, a bear market in stocks, or a combination of all three. And that's a function of interest rates and the impact on the economy and the leverage, right? And we have more leverage today than we've ever had in history. Back in 1980, when um, Ed Yardini coined the term bond vigilantes, Debt to household equity, uh, net worth was about 60%. Today, it's 150. So the, the change, the rate of change of interest rates, not just on, on household debt, but corporate debt, government debt, is important, right? It's huge. So we can't sustain higher rates indefinitely because of the impact of higher rates on all the debt. Now, going back to 1787, we've had basically a year and a half now of, of negative bond market returns. But there has never been a period of time, even in the 60s and 70s, when interest rates were going up because of the oil embargo, the default on the debt, you know, everything else. This happened by the 60s, 70s. You never had three years in a row of negative returns. Now, if we have a negative return on bonds this year, Year's not over yet, but right now we've got a negative return. This would be the first time in history you have three years of row uh, in a row with negative returns on bonds, going back to 1787. So despite the Great Depression, despite the, you know, the oil embargoes and, and massive inflationary spikes, et cetera, you've never had three years in a row of negative bond market returns. Can't mean it doesn't mean it can't happen this year. Could. But what's the likelihood of a fourth or a fifth? Or a sixth. See, this is the problem with the thesis that, well, interest rates are going to go higher forever. And, you know, you want to be all in stocks. Okay. 
but just something to think about. But back to this idea of bond vigilantism, you know, bond vigilantes are fine until the, the sheriff actually, you know, the good sheriff comes into town and arrests the, the vigilantes, right? Vigilantism is illegal, right? If you want to go out and lynch your neighbor because, you know, his dog pooped in your yard, you can do that, but you're probably going to wind up going to jail. So the sheriff in town is important. And we'll talk about him in a second. But if we look back at over history also, too, just talking about changes in rates, when the Federal Reserve hikes rates aggressively like they have done now, it's always led to a crisis event, either in the stock market, a recession, or a, or a financial crisis, right? So, again, it's just a function of interest rate changes over time. And we've had a very large change in rates. Um, the, so it should be fairly obvious what probably happens next. But let's talk about the sheriff in town because that's the most important issue. The change today, and this began in 2008, and this is the key point about the whole bond vigilante market, right? So back in 1980, when Ed Yardini coined the term bond vigilante, it was the bond market traders, right? It was the guys running the bond market. It was the institutions. It was uh, the corporate bond traders. It was those guys, the guys on Wall Street. They ran the bond market. They were the buyers. They were the sellers. That was it. When the, the government wanted to sell treasury debt, not yet, Brent. When the government wanted to sell treasury debt, they would sell it to the open market uh, through their through their uh, preferred dealers, and then those got sold off to retail investors. But that's not the way the bond market works anymore. Now you can. In 2008, the central banks became the sheriff in town. When the bond market didn't want to own bonds... Because of the Lehman crisis, nobody was willing to trade with each other. The Federal Reserve stepped in and said, hey, we'll buy them. And it's not just the Federal Reserve. It's the Bank of China. It's the Bank of Japan. It's the ECB. It's the Swiss National Bank. So when times get tough in the bond market and when bond traders go, well, I don't really want to buy bonds right now, central bank steps up. What happened in March of this year when you had the regional bank crisis? Federal Reserve stepped in, started a bank term funding program, BTFB, P, bailed out the banks. And this is going to be the case going forward. This is, this is the new sheriff in town, and that's not going to change. And that, by in and of itself, leads to the issue that there can't be bond vigilantes anymore. And going forward, the more debt that we issue, that just simply means that the Federal Reserve is going to have to monetize more of, a, more of that debt that is, that is issued. Now, that's not printing money, by the way. That's an asset swap. And this was one of the, the misnomers of the emails I got over the weekend was, is, well, the Fed's going to have to print a lot more money. No, the Fed doesn't print money. They credit the reserve balances of the banks. It's a digital swap. And then in exchange, the bond transfers to the Federal Reserve. And then there's a closed loop between the Treasury and the Fed recycling interest payments. So this asset swap going forward, the Fed will have to monetize up to 30% of the total debt issuance going forward, according to the CBO. We'll, we're going to be um, running at about $135 trillion of debt <laughs> by 2050. The Fed's going to have to monetize at least 30% of that to keep interest rates suppressed. Now, if you don't believe, so, so you go, well, Lance, that, that 
you know, right there, that's the problem. And that's why interest rates are going to have to go up eventually because there's just so much debt, so much deficits. Well, the problem with that idea is that we have an example to look at. All we have to do is look at the debt to GDP of Japan, which is currently running at about 220% of debt to GDP. And they're still here. Where are interest rates? Zero. Since 1995, their debt to GDP has been swelling and interest rates continue to decline. Economic growth continues to deteriorate. They have rolling recessions. It's not a pretty sight for Japan. But they're still here and interest rates are still near zero. If we look at the reason why that is the case, that is because the Bank of Japan is the sheriff in town for Japan. The Bank of Japan's balance sheet, they now own basically all of the ETF market, about 80% of the ETF market, the bond market, the stock market. They're just buying all the assets in order to keep interest rates suppressed and trying to keep some nascent rate of economic growth going in the economy. They are by themselves the sheriff in town for the bond market. So the point is simply this, is that at the end of the day, the, the thesis of the bond vigilantes returning and driving interest rates up to the moon is simply not the case. Because in an environment where all else was equal and we only had bond traders in the market, that is a likely possibility that that could happen. The bond vigilantes could control the market. But all else is not equal when the central banks can buy all the debt that they need to buy to keep interest rates suppressed. And they'll have to, to keep the economy functioning. Be right back after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So one of the uh, interesting things right now is uh, last year, in 2022, these Google searches for recession were like spiking through the roof. And, you know, just like a, a vertical rocket taking off. And so it was interesting because we didn't have one. And now that we haven't had a recession, now the searches for recession have fallen markedly. In fact, you know, hardly anybody's searching for recession and everybody's searching for soft landing or no recession, right? And so that, that search is now taken off here in 2023. And it's interesting because you remember last year we said, you know, everybody was expecting a recession. And the problem with that from a contrarian view is that, as Bob Farrell always says, is that when, when all experts agree, something else tends to happen. And everybody, all the experts agreed last year we're going to have a recession. We didn't have one. Now everybody, all the experts say that, well, there's going to be no recession. And see, and I find that really interesting because if we go back in history and look at 1990, 2001, 
2007. The vast majority of Wall Street economists proclaimed that the U.S. was on the cusp of achieving a soft landing. And that's, of course, where interest rate increases corralled inflation but didn't cause a recession. So looking back last year and this summer in particular, the combination of falling inflation this year and the fact that we have a cooler, cooling labor market, but we don't have an economic recession, right? So now economists are all going, well, see, we've, we've done it this time. We have achieved the soft landing, that, that much fabled soft landing. We have, have finally achieved it. But remember back in 1990, 2001, 2007, when everybody assumed the soft landing was in, the recession came shortly thereafter. Soft landings are rare for a reason. They're, they're very tricky to pull off. And a lot of it comes down to just luck more than anything else. Uh, you know, one of the delays that we've talked about in terms of this soft landing scenario is that we have all this liquidity in the system. Um, first, it was stimulus checks, then it was the Inflation Reduction Act. And so all this money is still circulating through the economy. Of course, the suspension of student loan payments and rents and all this other nonsense that we had and uh, additional you know, benefit extensions, child tax credits, all this stuff. Right. We had just tons of money we were throwing into the economy during the shutdown. And that's still in there. Right. It's still cycling around. So that's delaying this impact of the onset of the recession. And so now we're just assuming that the growth that we have is still orga- is now all organic and it's going to stay this way. The problem is that's probably not the case. Now, this week, the Fed is expected to hold rates steady after raising them to a 22-year high. But the goal of a soft landing really faces four threats, Right. The first is, is the Fed holds rates too high for too long. We have a huge refinancing wall of debt coming up for companies next year. And they're going to have to refinance at higher rates. That's going to be an impact, especially to small and mid-cap stocks. And one of the areas that I probably don't want to be invested in heavily is small and mid-cap going into next year. A reacceleration of economic growth. You know, uh, the Federal Reserve... Uh, I'm sorry, not the Federal Reserve, but the government does some type of spending bill that we're not thinking about right now. Causes another dump of money into the economy, and you get a growth of a reacceleration of growth that that puts on, you know, more more inflation. You know, there's, you know, energy prices rise. You have a, you know, uh, to a point that it causes, you know, some type of economic disruption. Or you have a financial event. Again, interest rates going up and high interest rates on debt suppresses the collateral value of banks, which, you know, we're not necessarily out of the woods in the whole regional bank crisis. And that could spread to larger banks if interest rates go higher or remain high for too long. So there's there's certainly threats out there that could manifest themselves into a problem of this soft landing scenario. So I think it's something that you have to be aware of and at least be considering that a recession is still possible. And look, there's a lot of indicators that still suggest 
a recession is a risk. Leading economic indicators, consumer confidence, um, you know, FIB surveys, you know, inverted yield curves, you know, all these still suggest that that a recession risk remains. Now, does that mean we actually have you know have to have one? Don't know. But you've got an economy right now that's working with very little slack. So anything that, you know, lowers demand could send the unemployment rate sparking sharply higher. That's a process that's very hard once it starts because this is about companies trying to protect profit margins. Already, companies are, are starting to pull back on wages. You know, Walmart just recently said, hey, you know, we're, gonna, we're paying lower wages for new hires. Companies are pretty much at full employment. So to protect profit margins, if demand slows at all, they're going to start laying off workers to protect profit margins. So... You know, since World War II, I thought this was interesting. This is from the Wall Street Journal this morning. Since World War II, economists say the U.S. Had, has achieved only one durable, soft landing. That was in 1995, and that's not really the case. Because the Fed hiked rates in 1995. Then you had the Asian contagion. Then you had long-term capital management that we had to bail out which is $100 billion at the time, peanuts for today. Then the Fed cut rates for a very brief moment and then hiked rates again, and then you had the recession. So, yeah, you had a period of no recession, but you had two financial events in, in between that before you had the recession and the dot-com crisis. So I'm not sure you can actually call that a, a soft landing, but we're going to give them credit for that one. We'll say, okay, we'll, we'll give you that one, even though it was just pretty much a delayed soft landing recession. But outside of that, since World War II, there has not ever been a soft landing and one that was risk-free. So... You know, the problem is, is, is for the Fed, if they hold rates too high for too long, it risks an unnecessarily severe downturn. Because, again, we have more debt than we've ever had before. So we have a highly leveraged economy, high, highly leveraged, you know, government. So keeping rates elevated is, is eating away at that ability for consumers to spend money. And the question is, if you hold them too high for too long... Something breaks. Don't know what it is, and we won't know what it is, and we never know what it is. You know, whatever causes the problem will just show up overnight, and it'll be like, nobody saw that one coming, right? Just like we did. Nobody, nobody expected Lehman to fail. You know, on Monday, Lehman bonds were trading at par, double A plus rating. On Friday, the company's bankrupt. Nobody saw that coming. The bond market didn't see that coming. And that's the way it always is. Hold rates too high for too long. Something happens that breaks something. You know, but if we go back and look at 1995 as an example...
growth did falter and the Fed did cut rates temporarily. And then the market exploded over the whole dot-com, you know, kind of fantasy. But this is not the situation that we have today. So, so it's a very different environment at the moment. So the point is, is that the mistake <clears throat> that investors may be making is assuming this kind of soft landing scenario. Now, look, I, you know, the problem with predicting a recession is that the economy can always stay stronger for longer than you expect. And there's a problem with the data that you don't know about and you won't know about until later. And this is why the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is the organization that dates recessions, is always running six to nine to 12 months behind saying the recession is there. Because the reason is, is right now you may think the economy is growing at two and a half percent. And then a year from now, they're going to revise the data and say, oh, yeah, well, the economy really wasn't that strong then. It was only growing at a half a percent, and then it slipped into a recession the following quarter. See, it's the revisions of the data that get us because we don't know what we don't know. And that's the risk of assuming that the data you have today that's saying no recession is right. And a year from now, we may find out it wasn't. But that's the problem with investing. We have to deal with a lot of uncertainty. But I think dismissing the risk of a recession entirely, probably not a great idea. All right, wraps up the show for this morning. We'll be back tomorrow, of course. Uh, tomorrow, we've got our, our technically Tuesday takeaway, and we'll talk some more about that article in the morning right here on the show, talking about the rest of this year, what it may look like. Got some charts and graphs to help it out. So we'll talk about that in the morning right here on the next edition of The Real Investment Show. Have a great day.